0: Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.
1: Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible. I am Bruce Feldman, joined as always by Stuart Mandel. Uh, We are taping this on Wednesday morning, and we have to admit, the Associated Press did us and a lot of other people who covered college sports a big favor when they dropped their top 100 all-time college football program rankings. And uh, Stu, you know, I got to admit, I was a little surprised at the order. I wasn't shocked, but they have Ohio State 1, Oklahoma 2, Notre Dame 3, Alabama 4, USC 5, and we'll get into the rest of the list. What jumped out at you?
2: What jumped out at me was that okay, two things. Number one, and I wrote about this real quickly, Alabama shows up at number four and we can question in a second whether that's the right number or not, but there's a nugget in there. They did a little write-up of each team, and, it, and I think this is just amazing. From ni- 1980... To October of 2008, Alabama was only ranked number one once, and that was the final poll of the 1992 season. The Tide has been ranked, top ranked, 43 times since then under coach Nick Saban. So they have been number one 74 times in the history of AP poll, and 43 of them have been under Nick Saban. And he's only been there, by the way, um, or starting in 08. So, you know, he's done this in the course of eight seasons. That's staggering to me. The other one, Michigan coming in at number seven. Michigan's a program whose fans like to uh, brag about them being the winningest program of all time. And therefore, one might think they're right at the top of this list or right near the top of this list. But, and we've talked about this before, for all those wins, they don't usually uh, finish on top. And I was uh, surprised to see they've been ranked number one a total of 34 times, which was much lower than the six teams ahead of them. And, of course, only two national championships in the AP
1: poll era. OK, well, have them at seven. I'm not at all surprised. I, you know, I we did talk about this around signing day. I remember there was a podcast. And, you know, it, uh, national championships are the most important thing. And they don't have them, especially in the last, whatever, 50 years. There's one. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I think seven is not... I don't want to say it's generous, but I think seven is a pretty realistic spot to me.
2: What about Alabama? Uh, you know, I'm too low. Too uh, low. at Number not, four. They would
1: be in my number one.
2: Well, now before you get to that, we should yeah. have said right off the top: this was not a subjective ranking. They actually used a formula, and of course, you could debate whether the formula or the methodology is is uh, right, but. They basically gave them one point every single for every time the team has been in the AP poll since 1936. So that rewards you know teams that have been consistently
1: good. That also rewards the preseason polls a lot because, as we know, for generations, teams usually don't slide down in the polls very often. You know, it's like you're it's a preseason waiting dramatically. So. I, I don't agree with the methodology of this. Now, I'm not going to say I'm outraged because I don't care that much. I don't care much at all. I think it's fun to talk about, but I think it's it's the last poll that matters. It's not, you know, where were you ranked in in October or September? Who cares?
2: So you would rather they, to celebrate the 80th anniversary of the poll, only use the last one for each of the 80 seasons?
1: I think that's where it should have been, it should have been most of the weight because does it matter? Like, I mean, Auburn, you know, do, are we rewarding them for, for a lot of people thinking they were supposed to be good in 2015 and stink, improving to stink?
2: That's a good point. I, don't, I can't disagree with that. On the other hand, the you know, over the course of 80 polls, 80 seasons, they have probably conducted, I don't know, 1,200, 1,300 polls. So if you're going to, you know, the one preseason poll each year isn't going to carry that much weight. They also gave two points for every time a team was ranked number one and 10 points bonus for AP championships. So again, it it kind of rewards consistency. And in that regard, Ohio State, which is number one, has been in 77.2% of all the polls they've ever done, 105 number one rankings, that's the highest, um, comes in as being a little bit more consistent than Alabama. How many national titles are they credited with
1: compared to... to, uh, to
2: Ohio State is credited with... Five, which is half, AB national championships, which is half of that a- many of Alabama. Yes. Well, you're to me, you're starting to sound like uh, obviously national championships are the most important thing. I get that, but of course, we also must acknowledge that for much of the poll era, I mean, 80 years and only the past uh, 16 have had an actual national championship game. So you know, there's a reason they called it mythical national championship. So I would have to go back and look, but I'm sure some of those Alabama years are disputed. Maybe one of the Ohio State years is disputed. Uh, If you're going to do it solely on that, this list is going to look a lot different. It reminds me of people who debate NFL quarterbacks and throw out the stats and the record, and it's all about whether or not they actually won a Super Bowl, which, as you know, can be a bit arbitrary.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, all, all this is subjective you know, to some, some degree. I mean, somebody could say, well, should you have factored in whether teams are on probation or, you know, what kind of rule-breaking component did they have? Well, what?
2: and that kind of unofficially factors into where Alabama is because they went through this period in the 90s and early 2000s when they were very mediocre and but, it was yeah. self-inflicted.
1: Yes, and I think that's—I'm glad you pointed that out because I do think that is a reason why there was some of that drought a big reason was, was they were their own worst enemy when it comes to this. Uh, from from the looks of the other one, I, again, it is interesting just to kind of go through this. Um, were you surprised anybody else was out – any programs were outside of the top 15? Go away. This is too low or I'm surprised to see them that high.
2: No, because I have to uh, toot my own horn here for a second. There's a column I used to do at SI.com. I did it twice, five years apart. Uh, ranking the programs purely subjectively, um, in, putting them into tiers of all-time program prestige. And the top tier was the Kings, followed by, um, what was the second one? I know there were Knights, there were Barons. I, I, I'm, I'm not, yes, it was Knights, then Barons, then Peasants. Anyway, uh, there were 13 teams that I considered to be Kings in the last one, which was 2012, and they are the same 13 teams, top 13 teams here on this list. And Tennessee was my first one out, and they are number 14. And Georgia, the team whose fans were most outraged at me about not having them among the Kings, is 15th.
1: So uh, who was your number one overall if you do it?
2: Um,
1: Based on the methodology they're using, I can't disagree with Ohio State. So you would have – don't get me based on the – who would you have as number one? Who's your all-time number one program? Your methodology. Your...
2: Um,
1: uh, Notre Dame. Okay. So you said Notre Dame. Yeah. Why do you, What do you base that on?
2: Um, based on having probably the longest history success of any of these programs. Now, they obviously haven't had as much recently. I see they are credited with eight national championships here. Now, remember, the AP poll only dates to 1936. Notre Dame claims no co- at least a couple of national championships from – um before that and you know here's a stat here Notre Dame was ranked at least once every season from the first poll in 36 through 61 of
1: course yeah, you like you that's said the, a couple of those could be, be the artificial. part yeah I don't you know that's... I think
2: I would go Notre Dame 1 Alabama 2 Ohio State 3 I haven't really considered Oklahoma but they are number two on this list they've been number one 100 times they have seven national championships so yeah, they would have to be in the mix as well
1: I would have had uh, Alabama 1, Notre Dame 2. I would have Oklahoma 3, USC 4, Ohio State 5. Let's
2: talk about USC for a second. Uh, I was a little surprised to see that, for example, uh, USC. Would you have guessed, um, if I had told you beforehand, which team do you think has been ranked number one more in the history of the AP poll, Alabama or USC? USC. You know, I probably would have guessed Alabama. Me too, for sure. But no, uh, USC 90.5, number one rankings. I guess there was a tie one week. Alabama 74. uh, USC 5 national championships. They were top ranked. Uh, Now here's another. Wow, this might be even more impressive than Saban's stat. Do you know that USC was the number one team 42 times from December of 2003 to September of 2008, under Pete Carroll. That does. I mean, I live
1: out here. That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, to me, USC. You know, you can say whatever you want about the Reggie Bush scandal, but USC was on a different level for most of that than than the rest of college football, and certainly the rest of the Pac-10.
2: They were, but let's think about that for a second. I mean, we're talking late 2003, so it's really just four, five, six, seven. It's about five seasons, and they ranked number one 42 times. Well, there's. About fifteen polls a season. That so, was the glory
1: run of Pete Carroll, though. So I mean, that's forty-two
2: out of seven. About for, about forty-two out of about seventy-five weeks in that period, they were the number one team in America.
1: I'm going to so, give you the watershed moment of that of that uh, run, and I think you were at the game as well when they played Oklahoma. A lot of people thought that was a really talented Oklahoma team. USC guys, I know that staff, that old staff. They were very confident it wasn't going to be that close, and they absolutely destroyed Oklahoma that night. And um, I think that stayed in a lot of people's minds. Where you saw that, that was a night where they, where Arkansas, who had very, some very talented players on Houston Nuts' team, came out to the Coliseum. USC could have beaten them by a hundred points that night. Like there were moments of that. They would go to, you know, to to Auburn. I think it might have been Lineart's first game as a starter, and they just destroyed Auburn. There, and
2: there were a lot of moments like that during that time. You know,
1: you know their arch rival, Notre Dame. You know, they embarrassed Charlie Weiss. They embarrassed, uh, you know, consistently. Yeah, there was the Bush-Push game, but, you know, there were games where Notre Dame didn't even look like they could get a first down against them.
2: I remember being at the Ohio—they played at Ohio State in at the Coliseum in early uh, 2008, which yep. it looks like is, is on, toward the end of this era they're talking about. You, Ohio State had played in the last two national championship games. Uh, Terrell Pryor, that was his first start, I believe, or he came in early in the game. They were just completely – they just completely overpowered them. Uh, The Rose Bowl that year, they played a Penn State team. Outclassed. 11 games, I want to say. Daryl Clark was the quarterback. Not even – I mean, when they would go out, that was what was really so impressive is how good they were in these intersectional games. I mean, really, other than Vince Young's Herculean performance, Mm -hmm. when they would go play these teams from other conferences, they would embarrass them. Now, they would also trip up once or twice – to an Oregon state or, you know, and most famously, uh, uh Jim or Harbaugh's Fresno first, state would give them their hands yeah, for Jim people. Harbaugh's first Stanford team. That tremendous upset. in seven. I mean, that's college, right? Like they're going to, kids are going to play up to the play, play up and play down to the competition. Um, anyway, but obviously USC has a long storied history from before Pete Carroll. And, uh, that's reflected in that number five all time ranking. I want to talk about Nebraska for a second, because Nebraska is number six and, uh, you know, obviously, the Tom Osborne era. Uh, how, how about this stat? They were in every single poll, 100% of them, in the 90s. <laughs> that's, that's definitely impressive. But I bring that up because would you, if you were ranking the, the top programs in the country today in 2016, Nebraska would be nowhere near number six. And I don't realistically see a day, unless there's some drastic change in the hierarchy of the sport, where they'll be number six again.
1: Yeah. The one thing that does benefit them is that the Nebraska coaching job, I think, got a little better when the Big Ten put the divisions the way they are because that is a very winnable division as opposed to if they were somehow grouped with the Michigan schools and Ohio State. Uh, using this as an example, I, let's just go even further hypothetical, down the hypothetical road. If we were to do these rankings 20 years from now, which of the schools in the top twenty, besides Nebraska, let's say the top fifteen? Which of the schools in the top fifteen do you think have the have the uh, toughest chance to remain in the top fifteen? Teams in the top
2: fifteen with the toughest chance to remain in the top fifteen,
1: other than uh, Nebraska, Nebraska, because I think we would say Nebraska is safely, you know, in there.
2: Um. Well, two possibilities stand out, Penn State and Miami. I believe, I do believe Miami will will get back. Uh, You know, I don't know if it'll be next year, five years from now, whatever. There's just too much talent there, too much history in that program for them to be kind of what we're talking about with Nebraska. Penn State, you know, this is a a crossroads moment because pretty much the whole history of that program was tied into one coach. Uh, There are now two coaches removed from that. We talked about James Franklin during Big Ten media days, whether there'll be enough patience there for him to get this back. They play in a division now with Ohio State and Michigan. You know, it's an interesting thing. Penn State joined the Big Ten in, I want to say, 93, and since then have won a grand total of two Big Ten championships. Wait, let me fact check that for a second. 94. Three Big Ten championships. So... To be the number twelve all time program you got to start be being the number twelve program team in the country most years i don't see that happening
1: yeah, that would have been my my uh my my guess too would have been the Penn State one. I just think again it's in a much tougher position that it's in they're still coming out of some really they're not u s c level sanctions, but there were sanctions that were were going to you know deplete them, and I think it was just a lot of transition. You know, going from the end of the Paterno era, which, quite honestly, they were backsliding even then. And then, you know, Bill O'Brien and now James Franklin, I just think it's a, it's a heavy lift, you know. And when you look at what they're up against now, I think they're, they're, in a, they're, in a, they're just in a tougher place, I think. Um, all right, so we, we talked about those rankings. Let's, you came out with your updated top Before 20- you get to that, I want to just
2: acknowledge one more thing on this AP all-time ranking.
1: You, is this going to be an Iowa preflight flight reference?
2: <laughs> Iowa preflight does show up toward the bottom of this list. As does, can you name the one? Uh, Iowa preflight doesn't exist anymore. But can you name the one existing university on the top 100 that no longer has a football team?
1: Yeah, Santa Clara.
2: Santa Clara right here in my backyard. No, I just wanted to do a quick shout-out to a couple programs that appear in the top 25 that frankly might surprise some people, and that would be number 20, Washington, and our good friend E.J. Borghetti, number 23, Pitt.
1: That shouldn't. I mean, Pitt shouldn't surprise anybody. If you look at some of the greatest, you know, legends of, and I'm not saying this for Juan's benefit, honestly, but you know, Pitt's history is pretty is pretty impressive. Especially, you look. Granted, they haven't been in the polls much, but of late, but. You know, in terms of cranking out NFL Hall of Famers, I think they're like in the top five of that of Pro Football Hall of Famers. There's been some really iconic figures who've, who've come from Pitt and they've had a lot of success on the field.
2: Pitt may be the perfect example of a, you know, we've talked about this in the past, like your perception of college football history is shaped in great deal about when you were born. And, you know, when did I first start being aware of college football? Late 80s, early 90s. That's almost exactly when Pitt stop being a national presence they were you know their peak was obviously the 70s and early 80s the tony Dorsett, uh dan marino yeah. teams so in my lifetime i only kind of know them as
1: well it was even before dan marino the quarterback there was matt cavanaugh and if you you know like people who are at least my age or older uh i remember how what a dominant player hugh green was oh sure Like Hugh Green, you know, was a good NFL player. I don't even, you know, trying to compare a a college player of this year to what he was like. I mean, they had a loaded front seven. The whole defense was really good. But just, uh, you know, that was kind of what I grew up with. One of my first, you know, recollections of college football was Earl Campbell at Texas. But right after that was Pitt. And, you know, they had some special teams. You know, around that era, and you're right. You go into the, you know, 1990. Now they've had some really, you know, Antonio Bryant was a really good player. Larry Fitzgerald was a fantastic player. Now they've had some, some, you know, really good players, but the teams themselves were, not nothing special.
2: Well, it's interesting. How, I've, it's been interesting to watch how the expectations there have changed since my time covering the sport. Walt Harris. I remember when Walt Harris was there, and he would take them to a bowl game every year and the media there would just crush him because they were still holding Pitt to the standard of they should be a national title contender they ended up in fact they ended up running walt harris out in a year that he took them to the fiesta bowl i now pat narduzzi's there i don't hear anybody talking about national championships they would just be happy to go to a better bowl than the uh, right now they'd be happy to go to a better bowl than the birmingham bowl or well, I think uh, when so you have a re-
1: revolving door of coaches, as they did at a ridiculous pace, uh, you know that's probably part of it. it certainly didn't help.
2: Pitt you know. would be, a, by the way, a good way for you to segue into what you wanted to talk about next.
1: Okay, that's not exactly the way I wanted to get into it. Okay. But So Stu's top twenty-five. I noticed you did have Pittsburgh at twenty-five, but that's not what I want to talk about, Stu. Should I want clear,
2: I, We're talking about my preseason top. Yes,
1: your top preseason. We're done top top. with
2: all-time programs. We're talking about twenty-sixteen.
1: Yes, thank you. Uh, okay, so Stu, Stu's, Stu's made big, big changes from the original top twenty-five he did like seven months ago.
2: Well, I started from scratch. I said,
1: Yeah, I know, you know it's I close know. Close to but the
2: season, We're I, It looks like you started
1: from my list, is what it looks like. Because oh, I know, I, I, I felt like look I look thought I was list. all in on, on on putting Louisville out there. I had him at number twelve. Felt like I was ahead of the curve. And then I'm, on the, I'm I'm on an elliptical yesterday when you send me what's going you know what you're going to post and I'm like you know what the fuck man he's, now, <laughs> he's he's going all in on Louisville. You have him 10. Um and so let's start there. So did I convince you of Louisville and Lamar Jackson or are you going to try to claim somebody else?
2: If you did it was subconsciously cuz I did I, don't, I didn't remember that until you just mentioned it, which is funny because I think we had a whole discussion about this on a podcast. This part of the podcast could be repetitive for anybody who listened to it in the spring. Uh, what it comes down to is this: as I went through it, um, you know you, you, you kind of end up seeing certain tiers. And you know, my top four haven't changed since I mean, maybe the order, but my top four hasn't changed since January, and that is number one, Alabama, number two, Florida State, number three, Clemson. Number four LSU, and then I get to five, and I there's you know that's when I started already feeling well I'm not a hundred percent confident in these teams, so there's a drop off after the top four. I ended up putting Oklahoma five, TCU six, Ohio State seven, Michigan eight, Tennessee nine. That group right there, five through nine pretty interchangeable in my mind, and then I went, who the heck am I going to put number ten? Because the the candidates I was looking at Stanford, Notre Dame, uh ucla washington iowa they all have serious questions so i said why not take a flyer on a team that i think has the potential maybe maybe it doesn't look obvious right now but i certainly think has the potential to be a top 10 team and to crash the party in the acc with uh florida state and clemson
1: okay and then there's a couple other teams that i thought were interesting moves uh the biggest difference i think you and i have is of the university of houston now, what's interesting is I have Houston ranked number five. I will update my rankings later this number month. Number
2: five in the conference in, in,
1: in, f- in the in the, the, AAC, in the country. Stu, come on, Stu. No, you have, I you wouldn't think, have in the AAC. You think I have Houston five, yeah.
2: is the number is the fifth best team in college football?
1: You don't you sound pretty outraged for a guy who had them at number ten in your original rankings. So what did Tom Herman do this off season that pissed you off so much <laughs> that you moved the Cougars all the way down, almost out of your top twenty-five?
2: Well, I just uh, I guess I got in that one you're talking about, I guess I got caught up in peach bowl mania and time has gone by and now I um am being more realistic about Houston. Um they had a great season last year. There's no question about that. Let's peel back that season a little bit. I mean, everybody remembers the win over Florida State, and I'm not going to take anything away from that.
1: But you I are don't... taking it away. I can hear it coming now. You're ready, to, you're ready to just take it away already.
2: Well, I've always thought it's unwise to judge to, to put so much stock in a bowl game. I mean, bowl games aren't the season. They're these weird events that take place on an island, and there's okay. coaching change. I've talked about this a million times, and somebody gets you know grossly overrated. I, the best example I can think of, the year West Virginia hung 70 on Clemson. In the uh, Orange Bowl, everybody was so high on them going to next season on Geno Smith and whatnot. And they started hot, and then they just imploded. And I don't think it's wise to put that much stock in a bowl game. Now, if they lost to Florida State, maybe they wouldn't even be in my top 25. But end of day, they went 13-1 and last season. Greg Ward, great player. Now, let's peel back that 13-1 and a little bit, shall we? Had a nice win at Louisville early in the season. Louisville was really struggling at that time don't think they were I don't think that would be the same result if they met uh, later in the season Um, you know the Memphis. Fortunately we're going to see that game because Louisville has to go to Houston on a Thursday night in mid-November. Memphis game Uh, that was actually I saw a little bit of a replay of that recently that was a crazy game where they came back from a huge uh, deficit they lost to a pretty mediocre
1: UConn team. By the way Greg Ward got was injured in that game so he wasn't he didn't wasn't the the quarterback for the whole game either i just i think they're a group of five
2: team that has enough talent to on any given day if they have the chance to beat a florida state of last year to they could theoretically beat oklahoma to start this year but over the course of the season are they i think 20th is about what they are maybe a little bit higher but certainly nowhere near fifth i think you have you have drank the houston kool-aid just a little bit too much
1: fair enough uh last year uh, I, you know, we did those preseason videos when you were out in Playa Vista at our website office, and I bring this up because we did one together. Were, these were nothing special videos. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. But uh, one of the videos we had to talk about was who was our best group of five team. Do you remember who I said? I believe I said Boise State,
2: and you said Houston.
1: I did say Houston.
2: Well, I think you deserve props for that.
1: I do and I I'm, I'm I'm not giving myself those intentionally for this. Maybe I am, I guess. But uh and the big reason was I think Tom Herman is that good of a coach. I think I think Houston has enough talent that they can match up. They're pretty good on the defensive line. I know they lost some really good players in the secondary, but from what I'm told, they're they're more athletic than they were in the secondary, which is saying something considering William Jackson was a first round pick. But uh I think that they have enough that they can – I'm not saying their schedule is basically a two-game schedule, but Oklahoma is in Houston now. It's not a true home game. There will be a lot of OU you – know, It's not going to be at NRG Stadium where the Texans play. I think I'm fascinated by that game. And then, like I said, Louisville has to go in there late. I think if they beat Oklahoma, I don't even think they have to blow them out. I just think if they beat Oklahoma – and there's a lot of people going to be saying, okay, Houston has a, has a legit chance, if things break right, to make it into the playoff.
2: Reminds me a little bit of 2010 Boise State, which came into the season ranked in the top five, and much to the skepticism of a lot of people. Now, at that point, they had had a longer run. I mean, Houston's basing this basically off one season. Uh, you know, the year before that, I believe they lost to UTSA. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, the point is, there was an entire off season of hype and buzz around that Boise State team that seemed like it might be hard for them to match. I'm more worried about that with this Houston team, that they uh, have just spent, I mean, they're, they're one of the most buzzed-about teams of the entire offseason. Is that too much? But, you know, that Boise State team went out the first week of the season in Landover, Maryland, which we eventually, we eventually got to the stadium after a serious detour. Yeah. And, and, you know, last-second win, Calvin Moore, touchdown pass to beat Virginia Tech, who was also highly ranked, you know they got it done. That was the thing about those Chris Peterson teams, right? Go and play Georgia in the Georgia Dome, crush them. I will be so impressed if they beat Oklahoma in that opener because just because there's just been so much hype around this team, and I think a lot of people probably don't believe it yet.
1: Well, they also let's just you know circle back on that team because I think you and I remember that season. That was a that was a fun college football season. Not, not they all are, but especially that one. They played Nevada. On the road, and that was a good Nevada team, by the way. And I was in the Kaepernick era, and they lost in overtime on a field goal. So, if they it, were in a different, you were not in the BCS era anymore. Um, and I, I would still argue, believe. Oh, go ahead. I would argue, though, that like you said, that by the way, that was that was not actually a neutral site game. Yeah, it wasn't at, at Lane Stadium, but like playing Virginia Tech and Maryland is, if you're Boise State, is a tall ask. But they didn't have that other game. I, you know, I guess you could say, you know, playing at Nevada was that other was that other game to impress the voters. But you know, there's this Louisville game on a Thursday night that I definitely think um, is another opportunity, especially if they're as good as the Cardinals are as good as you and I think they'll be. Um, yeah, and I, I would say that that, that uh, this schedule that Houston plays because you know, the
2: American give the American credit. You know, it's it it's a good conference. I remember, you know. I don't think we fully appreciated it last year that you had in one one conference Greg Ward and, uh, and Paxton, Paxton Lynch. Lynch and that great Temple defense. You know, there, there's a lot of good teams, a lot of good coaches in that conference. And, yeah, they lost Justin Fuente. Um, you know, there's always going to be that coaching turnover, but I think it's going to be... Oh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Navy last year and Keenan Reynolds. I still think it's going to be a very good conference. And so this is definitely a tougher schedule. Even without those two non-conference games you mentioned, this is a tougher schedule than Boise ever played in the WAC or the Mountain West.
1: Yeah, I think they have a couple of teams there that'll be very interesting to watch. Just uh, I don't want this to turn this into a full-on Houston segment, which I think I've done. But you know, Tulsa I think is is an interesting team. I'm not saying they're a top 25 team. We'll see what they do against Ohio State if they can be competitive. They certainly were when I saw them last year against Oklahoma, but they're. They're an explosive offensive team. Uh, and then we'll see how some of these other teams which really struggled. I think SMU will be much better. I think UCF will be much better. Both teams uh have really up, you know, upgraded their offenses in the last couple of years or will uh from where they were. So I think that'll help the American conference out. Now, is it gonna turn into like power five caliber? No, not not at this point, but Again, I think this is going to be a, a team to keep an eye on, like I said, especially if they beat uh, Oklahoma. Now your other ranking that that I want to talk to you about a little bit is your original rankings, you had Baylor number nine. Uh, now you don't have them at all. My original rankings, which mine were done in uh, middle of May, I had Baylor 17. Now what happened since then, like about a week later, probably two weeks later, uh, two weeks later, Art Bryles was canned as the head coach. And there's been quite a, you know, obviously a lot of a lot of stuff going on in Waco. Looking you back, know. why
2: did you have them as low as 17 pre-Art Bryles firing? Because, you know, they've been a top 10 team pretty much every year the last five years.
1: And the reason why is because they lost so much on both lines. You know, when you look at it, um, yeah, I think Seth Russell is good. Now, Jared Stidham was still there. He's not there anymore. Seth Seth Russell, you know, played terrific last year before his neck injury. But uh, if you look, I, I and I the only reason why I'm, like, very versed on this part of it is because I do these positional rankings. But I was, by default, had Baylor, you know, up there. And when I started looking, Baylor has KD Cannon and a lot of athletes who are unproven at that spot. Now, they'll be really good at running back. But when you consider, you know... R- largely rebuilt offensive line largely b- rebuilt defensive line uh the schedule sets up about as favorably as it could in the first 6 games for a chance for Jim Grobe to get some momentum there but i look at them now as really an 8 and 4 kind of team whereas maybe you know with 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 Bryles there and some of the other players they would have still had if you know the, if things didn't go in the direction they have I think it was probably a 9 or 10 win team. That's why I had them around there just because of all the pieces around. But I I know you said the other day, you told me you thought they were probably a 6-6 and team now, correct?
2: I think I said that on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, I just think interim coach, all the chaos there, lame duck assistant coaches sets up for kind of a disastrous season. So, yes, they're out of my top 25 entirely, Uh, as are a couple other teams that I would have at an earlier time assumed would be in there. You can tell me if I'm crazy, and this was not intentional. Just, you know, you have to—you get to the end. You've run out of spots. You think, well, should I replace one of the ones that I do have in there? And I decided not to. Okay, they are, and they're the ones I'm getting the most crap about on Twitter already. Uh, USC, Oregon, Georgia. Am I crazy?
1: USC, Oregon, Georgia— no. Um, I barely had USC in mind. They have the hardest schedule in, in the country this year from top to bottom. Georgia, I have them, I want to say, like in the in the high teens, like around 19. Um, and Oregon, I think I had a 21. So I don't think that's unrealistic. I mean, when I looked at your rankings, I saw you had – we both have Washington up pretty high. You had Washington State higher than me. You had them 16. And if you could say that with also the thought that Stanford's going to be a top 15 team, which you have them. You know, it's going to come at the expense of somebody. You know, I guess you're looking at Oregon as a 7-5 and five team, right?
2: Well, first of all, the Pac-12 teams, I didn't have any in the top 10, but they're all bunched very closely together after that with Stanford at 11, Washington at 13, UCLA at 14, Washington State 16, and Utah 17. Probably not going to play it out that way in the real— I mean, it'd be hard for those teams to all stay that— closely bunched together uh you know Oregon yeah I mean based on that I think they finished fourth in the north I think that team last year Vernon Adams saved that team without Vernon Adams that would have been a probably a seven and five type team Mm -hmm. and all indications are Dakota Prukop yeah he's not bad but he's not Vernon Adams he's not going to have that kind of impact there's nobody behind him at quarterback The defense was awful last year can they get better under Brady Hope yeah probably but not that great and so I think we're looking at the most, you know, after all those years of that offense just being unstoppable and Oregon winning 11, 12 games a year, I think this is the most mortal Oregon team since probably before Chip Kelly became the head coach.
1: Well, what's what's kind of interesting is this is the best group of receivers Oregon's had since they've been good. And I'm talking like in the last, you know, since probably 2000. This is the best collection of receivers they had. You could also say this may be the best group of running backs from one to four that they've had. So, skill wise, and they have a really good tight end and Farrell Brown and, you know, two guys behind him who probably started a bunch of other Pac 12 schools. So, you know, it's, I think, you know, fair. Look, the question is if Dakota Prukop, can stay healthy, which is something Vernon Adams wasn't able to do last year. If he can stay healthy and that's a big if, cause he runs it and he's, you know, not a huge guy, he's two, six two, 200, if he can stay healthy and if he can be accurate, I think they're a. I think they are, they will be a top 20, maybe even top 15 team. Cause it's not like this defense has been very good often regardless. I mean, they've, you know, Nick Aliotti had, a, had some competitive defenses, but it's not like we're talking about, they had a, uh, you know, one of these Don Brown, you know, Pat Narduzzi kind of defenses going. So they just have to be they just have to I think keep people under thirty five sometimes and they're gonna win they're gonna win games.
2: Yeah, of the three that I mentioned leaving out, I, I will fully admit that's the one I have the chance to be most wrong about, partly because I might be underselling Oregon, partly because I might be overrating Washington and Washington State, and maybe even Stanford if the Uh, One of the quarterbacks doesn't emerge as a viable guy. Uh, USC, it's the schedule. You know, I mean, coaching change, yes. Um, Doesn't sound like Max Brown is running away with the job like people thought he would. Obviously, they've got a lot of star power, Juju Smith-Schuster and Dory Jackson, a great offensive line. But, I mean, even if they come together, it's going to be really tough to have a top 25-type record against that schedule. Georgia, I just think it could be a bit of a rough year for Kirby Smarts in his first year. Uh, they should be really good on defense, but I think I think the offense is basically riding on Nick Chubb's knee. And all indications are he'll be back for the opener. Sony Michelle probably won't, so there's no running back depth. They're going to probably rely on a true freshman quarterback. Um, I don't know; it just doesn't feel right. I don't like that recipe. Obviously, we like Tennessee in the East. I, I think Florida will be better than some people expect. Uh, we talked about Vanderbilt as possible surprise in that division. So, um, yeah, I mean they weren't they weren't out by a lot, but it was you know, in the end, I had had them in the top 25s before I left them out. And frankly, it part to put in some teams that I think could surprise, like a Pitt, who I have at number twenty five, like a Texas A and M, who I have at number twenty
1: two. With to me, with Georgia, the thing that's hard to look at and, and see is. You know they open with North Carolina, who is a pretty good team, and it's in the in the dome I, I mean that, it wouldn't shock me if, if North Carolina won, but we'll see. But after that, they have Tennessee at home. They do have to go to Ole miss who has who definitely has talent and they have you know the Florida game, they play Auburn at home, Georgia Tech they play at home it's hard for me to see them doing anything worse than eight and four against that schedule.
2: No, I think that's uh, I think that's totally reasonable. Uh, I mean, if you're an eight and four SEC team, you're going to be in the top twenty five.
1: Yeah, that's that's my rationale on it. Um, while we're talking about Georgia, uh, let's get away from your rankings for for a bit, or for good. Um, the <laughs> there's an interesting story that came out of here that this week, and it involves a former Alabama, I guess it's technically still an Alabama, defensive back Maurice Smith. Uh, his mom was quoted uh, in, in a Dog Nation story, basically talking about how Nick Saban is blocking the grad transfer DB from transferring to Georgia. Uh, what's kind of fascinating to me is, uh, Maury Smith's story I followed a little bit because he's also considering reportedly Miami. If Nick Saban blocking uh, Maury Smith from going to Georgia – and ends up sending him to Miami would be would be quite the 180 because if you remember, months ago there was a you know a talented running back who had mentioned wanting to transfer back to possibly some schools in Florida. And he ended up at FAU because Kirby Smart, the new Georgia coach, would was going to block him from going to Miami. And the fact that Kirby Smart could lose a player to Miami that he wanted, or that wanted to go to Georgia. Is uh, I think there's, some, there's a level of irony in that.
2: No question. You know, we could get into the nuts and bolts of letting a guy, you know, a guy possibly going to another school in the SEC. Could they meet in the SEC championship? Um, you know, clearly Saban feels like he needs Maurice Smith. I think if he were the fourth string tight end, he'd let him go in a heartbeat. He certainly has no hesitation you know, letting those kind of guys transfer out, uh, normally, but I don't think it matters. You could, you, I don't care what the circumstances are. No school should be able to block a a graduate, a college graduate from deciding where he wants to play next and go to grad school next. We've talked about this rule many times. I know that some people think it's not in the spirit of the, of the rule. If the guy's not really going there for grad school, he's going there to play football, but you know, get over it, Nick. <laughs> I know you know you've got a, you've got all those four and five star kids. You think you won't, you'll be this this is going to crush your program to not have this kid. I just don't understand why any coaches and we saw this with Baylor when they didn't release the guys from the LOIs originally. Uh, we've seen it time and again. Coaches trying to block transfers. Why you want to try so hard to keep a guy who doesn't want to be there?
1: Yeah, I, I honestly think, and a lot there's a lot of confusion about the graduate transfer rule. I think this is something that the NCAA should just take it out of the coaches' hands and say, "Look, if you graduated, you can transfer without penalty anywhere." You know, we saw this last year in your own backyard, where Brennan Scarlett, who had played most of his career at Cal, ended up at Stanford
2: and ended up starting for Stanford and playing a big role on their defense. Imagine that—you you know, letting a guy transfer without restrictions to an arch rival much less a fellow SEC school
1: yeah so I don't know I, I, I mean again this is something that's probably one that you know we'll see how how big of a player we're talking about where he ends up we know this Miami has real depth issues at cornerback they have corn elder and not you know not a lot behind him they could use another guy in their secondary so we'll see what ends up with what this story ends up with Um I think we should get to the mailbag.
2: I think we should. Okay. As always, people have sent their emails to the audible at gmail.com. Uh, the theme of this week, people aren't happy with us about a couple of things.
1: Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, let's, let's start with this one. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't much angst, though. It's from Corey in Alabama. The release of the AP's all-time programs list brought about much debate. As we've already done, you can argue with the results, even if the logic is inherently flawed. So even as dominant as Alabama has recently has been recently, they remain only fourth. You brought up Alabama's dominance under Saban and just how amazing it really has been. Where would this dynasty rank all time greats such as Oklahoma in the 50s, Miami, Florida State in the 80s, 90s? And what would it need to accomplish at the top? You first do.
2: I think it's already very close to being at the top. You know, we, we as we mentioned, it's really remarkable that it's actually, you know, played out over eight seasons, you know, to have four national championships in there. I mean, certainly if you were looking, at, I can't imagine you could find a better eight-year run in the history of college football. But some of the dynasties he's talking about did it for 10, 15 years. So I don't have a magic number like, oh, if they can get it to to this many years, then it's the number one dynasty. But, you know, it's already close. I feel like with a couple more years of being in that perennial national title conversation, maybe adding one more at some point, uh, the the debate would be over. It would be the best dynasty we've seen in college football, especially given that the uh, competitive climate, especially in the SEC, is much tougher today than it certainly was in Bear Bryant's time, um, than, than the Big Eight was in Bud Wilkinson's time, and so on.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I think what Nick Saban has done in this run is the most impressive stretch that has ever happened in college football because it is so much harder to sustain success. I mean, if you look at it, there are scholarship limitations. You know, people can go, okay, well, they oversign and this and that. You know, back in other eras, you could sign guys just to or have guys just to keep them from going to other places. Uh, There were there were certain areas that sport wasn't fully integrated. There was uh, national championships awarded before the season was technically over when bowl games didn't count. I think also with the sense of entitlement and social media and all these other things that are surrounded by players, players will go somewhere just to play, go, rather go play rather than sit somewhere. So I think it makes it harder to, to keep guys and to deal with all the stuff that comes with it. And, uh, Corey and his email had mentioned, you know, Miami, Florida state in the eighties and nineties, um, you know, Miami won more national titles, Florida state had a great run, but there was, you know, you could say it was 55, 45 or whatever, but there is no other to Alabama here. It's Alabama. That's, you know, like as great as, as Miami's run was if Florida state had better kickers. We'd probably be talking about Bobby Bowden, not hmm. You know, and his run even more. So with Alabama, it hasn't been that way. I and mean, let's, they're uh, in midst of an amazing run.
2: And let's also throw in the fact that they're playing, they have to win more games than teams did in the past. First with the SEC championship game, uh, though they didn't need that that one year, but otherwise they have. And, you know, to win last year's national championship, they had to play 15 games. Some of the teams, certainly the the pre, you know, not the Miami-Florida State teams, but some of the ones before that, Probably played 10 regular season games in a bowl, and that was it. So um, I think it's pretty much there. I'm curious because this is about where some of the other kind of recent dynasties we've seen tailed off. You know, we talked about how Pete Carroll and USC couldn't have been more dominant. That was a two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, a seven year run. And then they had their down season, and then he left. You know, Ohio State under trestle, great run. And, you know, he gets fired, and that's the end of that. Um, you know, really. In my time covering the sport, seven eight years is about as long as it goes. So, if he again, if he sustain keeps sustaining this level for even a couple more seasons,
1: the debate is forever over. By the way, um, the Big Eight wasn't the Big Eight when in the fifties. What was it? It was the Big Seven. Hmm, I did not know that. Who had been? It not didn't become yet? the Big Eight until nineteen fifty nine, I believe. So, so now
2: I have I, to guess yes, which
1: of the eight wasn't there yet. You don't have to, but you, you could have make sure. I know. actually um was it Oklahoma State? It's possible. Let me take a look.
2: Oh I didn't realize you didn't already have it pulled up.
1: No. That's why I so said you can guess. I may not know.
2: Uh the big eight conference. Uh early membership changes. When, yep, I was right. Membership change happened in 1957 when Oklahoma A&M joined. So that would obviously become Oklahoma State's. That's interesting to think of Oklahoma being in that conference for that long without their
1: state rival. Um, By
2: the way,
1: now I just got a, an email released from Virginia Tech. They have a football game scheduled against Arizona 2029 20, and 2030. Get out the fact here. that their game schedule in 2030 is kind of mind-boggling. It's literally mind-boggling at this point. To think. I
2: gotta, I gotta take exception to that. I've, I've been very much in wanting these teams to call a truce, stop scheduling games so far out.
1: And they're not it's, listening it's to allowing
2: you. Allowing no uh, flexibility. And as I look at this at the end of the release, they list all of the notable marquee games Virginia Tech has all the way. They seem to now have one, uh, at least one every year through 2030. Like they already know they're playing Wisconsin in 2025 and uh, Maryland in 2029. This is ridiculous. And, uh, shame, shame on our friend, Greg Byrne at Arizona for t- partaking in this ancient, outdated practice. You know, nobody involved in this is going to still be there in
1: 2030. They'll, you know the what contract. though? Scooby might be the coach of the Wildcats in 2030. Oh, How about here that? Here we go. Teddy?
2: Here we go. How
1: about that? Teddy Mitrosy, Before
2: Bruce was the world's biggest Houston fan. He was the world's biggest Scooby Wright fan. Yeah. Okay. We got some more emails uh, to get to my friend. Okay. Um, Will Robinson, Seattle, add South Carolina to the growing number of teams who will practice in the morning this season? What percentage of teams do this? What is their reason? Reasoning, given your national scope, I'm interested in your thoughts on this.
1: I honestly have no idea what percentage. I know USC does it. I know UCLA sometimes, you know, has done it. Um, you know, teams. Oregon did it for a long time. That's I think, the
2: first one I remember. Chip Kelly doing that at Oregon.
1: You know, I think sometimes teams do it because. For a variety of reasons, one it's it's you know maybe to focus for them to get the, get their players kind of wired in for that. I think some pe- some teams do it for weather purposes, for how the how conditions are. Uh, the part that you know I, I the, the counter to this, and I know hearing Leach's argument. Now we know Mike Leach is the furthest thing in the coaching world from a morning person. But if you're playing a game at you know seven o'clock local time. And you're having your players regularly practice at 7 a.m., you know, you would think their body clocks might not be wired for that. And to get them to make that adjustment, you know, a couple of days before, I think would be a challenge. But I think some of this also has to do with with class schedules and different things like that.
2: Yeah, the explanation I've always heard from coaches who do it is, you know, because we're talking pretty early, right? Like the practices start at like 7 to 9 or maybe 9 Mm -hmm. to 11 um, is to just have them get all of their football obligations training meetings t- getting taped up practice get it all out of the way first thing in the day so that they have the rest of the day free to focus on school because um, otherwise the other way around the way it's normally been done you know practice is let's say four to six realistically they got to be there by 1 or 2 for meetings preparation um, maybe they're coming through there even earlier than that so um, I don't think it's any magic thing about performance or anything like that. It's just, just some coaches have come to believe that that's the best way to keep guys sharp throughout the day. They take care of football and then they turn their
1: attention solely to school. Mm. All right, the next question I'm gonna I want to answer first. It is from Ryan. Hey guys, I was a little disappointed in the Big Ten media podcast. I feel like during the SEC podcast, you frequently brought up how the SEC was allowing incoming freshmen with domestic violence issues to join the conference. The SEC has, the, has, I think it means at least, made a rule against transfers, while the Big Ten refused to do so. I feel like the Big Ten should be taking more heat for this than the SEC. And unfortunately, it wasn't even brought up. At the least, the SEC is starting to take steps in the right direction. I hope you guys cover this topic briefly on the podcast or the next mailbag regards Ryan. Ryan, you are exactly right. When uh, when we were back in Chicago last week at Big Ten Media Days, we had uh, Jim Delaney, the commissioner of the Big Ten, off to the side. And the question I asked him was this very question about you know the SEC has has gone to this move and other leagues are looking at it. Would power five schools uh, as a block consider doing it because that would also take away the the excuse of, well, if we don't take that guy, one of our rivals will. And I thought his answer was just very wishy-washy. He just was like, oh, well, we'll kind of see how it plays out. He the, the part that kind of like I didn't buy or agree with is part you know what you guys wanted to be called was the, the leaders and best or the leaders and legends and all the stuff about taking the lead and I don't think the Big 10 is taking the lead on this issue they're waiting and seeing and hoping that their schools quote do the right thing maybe they're afraid of being sued I don't know but I just thought look the SEC I think has at least on the transfer part is is taking a commendable step and I I You know, unfortunately, I don't think the Big Ten is doing that, and I didn't think the rationale, at least the way Jim Delaney explained it, I don't think sounded great.
2: Yeah, that's not quite how I interpreted it, and I do think the SEC should be commended for being proactive. The Pac-12 has a policy as well. The way I understood it, and I just looked up his – I mean he talked about it briefly on the podium. Then he talked about it with us later when you asked the question. I don't have the transcript of that part, but here is his ASAP answer from um, the ASAP transcript of his answer up on the on the podium um, when somebody asked, The Pac-12 and SEC have transfer bans for serious misconduct issues. Do you foresee the Big Ten uh, ever adopting that, or have there been discussions about that sort of rule? Delaney, we've had discussions on that. Uh, ever is quite a long time, but I would tell you that as we've looked at it, we've talked to our athletic directors, our faculty and presidents, we've had outside legal counsel, as well as experts on the Clery Act and Title IX, and we believe the facts and circumstances Closest to the ground are the places those decisions ought to be made. We've so that seen, means no, no uniform policy. Right. We've seen these policies executed. And in some cases, they work. And in some cases, they fail to work. So we've got a lot of confidence in the commitment by our institutions, totally committed to reducing, if not eliminating, violence, sexual violence in every way. As we continue to have these discussions, we've made the decision that based on the facts and the circumstances being local – he means the facts and circumstances of the incidents in play – that's the best place for these decisions to be made. So Ryan
1: – so I'll, I'll ask Ryan's follow-up question, which I'm thinking the same thing that I think Ryan probably is. Jim Delaney was quoted there as saying we've seen instances where these work and where they haven't worked. Where has the SEC rule failed so far? I think you
2: would have to say Jeffrey Simmons, right? The fact no, that no, that no, no. Included. I'm not
1: – no, that's not what I'm saying. I would say that that's because they're allowing – you know, fresh, oh, you're saying I'm that saying, you, where is well, the SEC tra- transfer rule with uh, egregious, you know, domestic violence, sexual violence histories failed? Yeah, you I know? don't
2: know. I don't know. I mean, it's only been in place for a year and there probably haven't been that many instances of it. I do remember him mentioning in the session off to the side that, you know, if you implement a rule like this, it's not just for football. It's for all their athletes. Mm-hmm. He ha- the Big Ten has 10,000 athletes, I believe he said. Yeah. I mean I think he's basically saying that it would be, it would be unrealistic that they're going to sit in their office in Chicago and these you know, police reports and whatnot are going to come in from West Lafayette and State College and whatnot. And, and somebody there is going to be able to uniformly declare, yeah, this falls under the policy. This guy can't transfer. So do, you think
1: I, I, do you think there's 10,000 of these cases, Stu? I mean they're talking about a lot of other compliance stuff they already do. If you can't weigh in, I mean Jeffrey Simmons. You, most people knew what the Jeffrey Simmons case was. If there was a Jeffrey Simmons in in college baseball, I think you know people within the Big Ten footprint would know about that.
2: I'm inc- end of day. I'm inclined to say that he's wrong on this and that the yes, you know, he should have a uniform policy, even if that means that you know. Maybe I think the deterrent
1: be- component of this, which the message you are sending, and this is one of the things that I, I found frustrating with. Uh, the kind of explanation that the Mississippi State AD gave was, you know, you're, whether you're saying it's unacceptable or not, by ex- admitting the guy, you're basically saying it is acceptable. And I think that in the case of that, I think it's important message to send that no, this is not acceptable. And I think the message you're sending to would be to perf- prospective student athletes. Yeah. doesn't mean they couldn't go to college someplace else. But if you're the Big Ten and you're trying to be held to a higher standard, then do it.
2: Bruce coming strong against the Big Ten. Um, I would be interested to revisit this in a couple years and see if the SEC's policy has worked or not and if the Big Ten
1: has had How a would we know if it, it worked or not still?
2: Uh, the way you would know is if there are some high-profile cases like this. like uh, Jonathan Taylor is a bad example because that was pretty – Obvious cut and dry a couple instances of schools trying to pick up transfers who had been kicked out of the previous school and it's a little gray
1: on well, are the, what were the circumstances exactly? Uh, let's use Jeffrey Simmons case as an example of gray or not gray. Let's say they had it for freshmen and not transfers. You know the way the court handled his case it wasn't like he was it was deemed a felony.
2: Uh, yeah. Again, there you go. I mean, to me, the, the the just from the video, it's a pretty cut and dry decision. But okay. But, but, if but they let's say, oh, now I got yeah. pleaded down to a misdemeanor. Let's pretend Jeffrey Simmons.
1: Back. Let's pretend Jeffrey Simmons started his career at at a junior college, and then, but this incident is out there. You know, like he was a five star kid who, let's say hypothetically, did not qualify for Mississippi State, went to junior college, then wanted to transfer into. To an SEC school, would the SEC rule prohibit him from getting in because of what we've seen on the video?
2: I, I have no idea. I think you're kind of. I think this gets into exactly what he's saying. It's, there's just so many scenarios and so many offshoots of this. You know, for, I get emails all the time from people who think the NCAA should have a uniform policy, and I say, are you nuts? You know, every one of these cases is different. How are they going to weigh hundreds and hundreds of these cases? So. But, again, I'm, op- I'm basically saying I'm open to, to both sides. Both sides have a compelling case. The SEC is putting that out there. Maybe it will be a deterrent, as you said. The Big Ten is taking a you know, hands-off approach. Let's let the schools police it. If a couple of schools come out and make embarrassing decisions and take kids they shouldn't be taking, then that's on the Big Ten and they should have a uniform policy.
1: I'm curious what our listeners feel about the, the Jeffrey Simmons hypothetical. If he was at a junior college and then was trying to transfer in, knowing we've seen that video, regardless of of how the courts handled that case, what should the SEC do?
2: We've got one here that's another critique of something we said. I don't think it's a question, but let's, uh, let's give it to them. And then we've got a great question to end it. Dave Sharp, Chicago, as usual, love the Audible. I think you went a little PC extreme with the view that the very existence of women's clinics seems sexist and implies all women know nothing about football but all men do. You would have to shut a lot of things down if you wanted to not slight anyone. The clinic I am familiar with seems to be thoroughly enjoyed by the participants, has repeat attendees each year, and raises money for good causes. Um, so, you know, he's saying maybe, maybe we're being a little too – we're generalizing a little bit too much to say because this happened at a and um, with the sexist slides. That they should just not do women's clinics anymore. It's a it's a relic. Um,
1: I get what he's saying. I, I get what he's saying too. I mean, I wonder if we would have, you and I would have had this part of the discussion three years ago. I feel like we are in a very fast moving. What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? You know how we think about these things. You and I, you know, we do not uh, work in a vacuum. You know, we. I think you and I both monitor social media. To see how people respond to things, not necessarily things that you or I write or talk about on TV or wherever, but just how other people have maybe had things that look like they become missteps and they blow into something bigger. Um, I don't know if that's – sometimes I think people use the term – and I don't want to call out our colleague Clay Travis on this, but I think sometimes people lump everything that they don't like under this is too PC and not PC – I don't think it's nece- I don't think it's that cut and dry. Um, but I think this is a, you know, I think his point is is an interesting one to to kick around.
2: Okay, lastly, Scott Carey, this is a fun one. Hey Stuart and Bruce, I'm getting ready for the start of the new season. What is the best college football movie of all time? Go Nevada Wolfpack.
1: I think most college football movies are not that good. I think most I think most football movies actually stink to be honest. I started looking through this when you sent me this one. Uh, The three best movies I I feel like I've ever seen football related. Um, Only one kind of I would call a college football movie. Um, Give me your give me your top three football movies. Let's not say college. If it's a college movie, great. But uh, give me your top three and I'll give you mine.
2: I was not prepared for that.
1: Okay, so uh, I, I'll give only, you my. Top yeah, score. go ahead. What is your favorite football movie, still? Rudy.
2: I mean, it's not even close. Rudy is the best college football movie of all oh, time. You're a I never get. A I mean, sap. I used to watch that with my. Uh, for, this is a long time ago. My friend Brian Crane, we were roommates in Atlanta, and for some reason, Rudy was always on. And when it got to the end, we would we every time same thing. No way, no way they're gonna put him in. Not gonna happen. Um, gets me every time. And then, but I would also say my uh, guilty pleasure. Uh, college football movie, like so. That's a that's a serious college football movie. But there have been so many great parody movies over the years. Johnny Be Good with Anthony Michael Hall. That sucks. That
1: that movie fucking sucks. Unnecessary
2: Stu. roughness. The program. Come on,
1: Stu. Have you ever seen North Dallas Forty? Yes. That's the best football movie I think that's ever been made.
2: There are some classic football movies that I've never seen. I never saw the original Longest Yard.
1: That's a great uh, movie, a I whole Mean Machine s- thing.
2: Semi-tough. Did you ever see All
1: the Right Moves? No. You should see All the Right Moves. I actually thought it's, it's – a high school, it's basically built, uh, built around a, uh, a football team in Pennsylvania, and Tom Cruise is a star. It has some overlap into you know, being recruited in college football.
2: What about th- New Rockney All-American?
1: I did not see it. I'm Me neither. sorry.
2: That's from 1940. Uh, all right. Your top three are –
1: North Dallas 40, uh, The Longest Yard, the original, and All the Right Moves. All the Right Moves might not have. I saw All the Right Moves when I was like in junior high. And I think sometimes you see a movie when you're that young that maybe you watch it years later and you're like, oh, what was I thinking? You know, there's or whatever. But I thought it was a really good movie. Plus, it's a Chris Penn movie. I was always big fans of his work. So.
2: I actually Um, think the best
1: football
2: piece of entertainment anytime recently was the Friday Night Lights series. Not necessarily the movie with Billy Bob Thornton, but the TV show, which was on for about five years, and which I actually didn't watch in real time but ended up binging on later. And you know what? And one of the reasons I didn't watch at the time was kind of what you're talking about. Like, oh, this is going to be cheesy. You know, they're going to try to replicate football. It's not going to be realistic, et cetera. They did a great job on the football scenes. But at the end of the day, it was about the coach and his family, and you know, high school issues. Uh, it was it was a very riveting series, and it had enough football to, you know, appease the college football fans. And both in terms of, you know, the game footage of the high school games, which they, as I as I recall, they shot in Austin and at actual high schools with actual players. Um, and then there's some college. There's a, there's a scene where one of the main characters gets recruited by texas a and there's some dirty recruiting that goes on there's a there's a storyline with a, a dad who's on the take so you know it's got a little bit of everything have you ever watched it
1: yeah i've watched it yes uh i can't say i've you know at this point in the time i just don't watch a ton of of it's not i not know if i call it scripted tv but just ton of shows who is your
2: all-time favorite friday night lights character
1: Booby Miles, and he's not a character. He's real.
2: You're talking about the movie.
1: I am, or yeah. Book. I'm talking about the show. Uh the show I honestly, you know, I barely watched. I the only time I really remember watching it was we had this goes back probably seven years. ESPN had a reporter conference where all of us were was an off site for like a couple of days. And they had a couple of the actors, the stars of the show, uh, you know, there to speak with us for an afternoon. And, I mean, I I watched it right before then, and that was seven years ago. I honestly don't remember much about it. I think, you
2: know, if you ever have the opportunity, and I know with Twins you uh, have all kinds of spare time, you should definitely binge on that series. To me, that series was a better piece of work than almost any of the movies we're talking about, with the possible exception of Rudy, which was, you know, the absolute perfect college
1: football
2: movie. Well, most sports movies are pretty sappy, let's be honest.
1: Yeah, North Dallas 40, not sappy at all. I would say people should watch it if they haven't. Um, It's an interesting one from the 70s. Speaking of college football series, I did get a chance to watch uh, the other day, there was kind of a pilot of being Brett Bielema that is going to be on, I think it's going to be on the SEC network or ESPNU. I should know that, but uh, they're not asking me to plug it, so I'll get it wrong. But I, I will be interested to see that, I, you know, as I've written before and said, I think Brett Bielma's is, is entertaining as hell. And I think these shows can provide a really good window into reality for people who want to see how college football, to some degree, operates. Are you going to watch the show?
2: I would like to watch that show. There's no question Brett Bielema is, is a walking piece of entertainment. So, yes, I would imagine I would watch that show. Uh, also, I you and I have talked about the Notre Dame series on Showtime a lot last season. We thought it was yep. very well done. They are doing it again this year but with Florida State, which is interesting to me because complete. I'm not sure you could find two programs that are different, more different. I mean, um, a lot of the Notre Dame series was about the – School and church obligations. Um, they don't have church obligations, but they would, you know, certainly the, 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 the church is a, a part of Notre Dame. Florida State, I think most people think of as just a pure football factory, uh, but it'll be interesting to see what the series reveals. It tends to be a little, you know, the school's willingly participating in it, so I don't think they're looking to get any gotcha moments. If anything, the, it felt at times like a bit of a propaganda machine for Notre Dame so this will be a good chance for Jimbo Fisher to showcase his program which th- two years ago three years ago took a lot of criticism surrounding Jameis Winston
1: yeah I, I'm totally with you on that so I will watch and uh, you know they've got they've definitely got a lot of talent and there are in the hunt of what we think will be a, a na- possible national championship right, right so tune in uh No advertisement this week, Stu.
2: No advertisement. No chance for me to read uh, an ad read. Rob Stone will be crushed when he listens to this on that. He's on a cruise to somewhere, Alaska or something right now. But he is certainly going to be listening to this podcast. We went a little bit long. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please subscribe to The Audible on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.